in a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. I'm your host, Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Dan. What's going on? Today, we're going to be talking about some notable epic last stands of history. Today, we're going to cover, first, what qualifies as a last stand? Why are last stands so fascinating and important to learn from? Spoiler, Thermopylae is very cool and well-known, but we will not be covering it today. Sad. There's the Battle of Karbala in 680 AD, the fall of Constantinople in 1453, stand of the Swiss Guard in 1527, the Alamo in 1836, Little Bighorn or Custer's last stand in 1876, the Battle of Shiroyama in 1877, Pavlov's house in Stalingrad in 1942, Ben L. Salomon's uh, last stand in 1944, and Alex Prokhorenko's last stand in 2016. So, Daniel, uh, what qualifies as a last stand? That is a great question. A last stand is any military engagement in which the defending force is severely outnumbered by the assaulting force, either in terms of numbers or weaponry or both, and makes a final push to keep the enemy at bay. In a last stand, the smaller force takes up a defensive position in a single location and tries to hold off the larger force for as long as possible, usually uh, fighting to the last man or until all defenders are captured. Desperate actions such as these are done for a number of reasons. Sometimes the defending force makes a last stand in order to buy time for reinforcements to arrive. Sometimes they're holding back the enemy so that a more important group or leader can escape, like the Swiss Guard protecting the Pope, uh, Pope Clement VII. In other cases, a last stand is made strategically in order to undermine the confidence of the opposing force or prove a point, like Thermopylae. In many other cases, a last stand is made out of necessity at the end of a long campaign, when the chance of victory is non-existent, yet the defenders must preserve their honor, like the Battle of Shiroyama or Karbala. Whatever the case, last stands are acts of courage in the face of certain death, and we at the Sons of Antiquity podcast wish to pay tribute in our own small way to those brave, hardened, manly men with nerves of steel and lion's hearts. Because no matter which nation or god they fought for, their actions were nothing less than badass. So why are last stands so fascinating and so important to learn from? So learning about last stands can enlighten us on a number of topics. First of all, personal. Why did the defenders choose to make a last stand at a certain time and place rather than retreat? What were they fighting for? Who were they fighting for? Why did they value their nation and beliefs or God or leader or their fellow men more than their own lives? And then their strategy. By learning about what led to such desperate actions, we can learn what went wrong for the defending army. How could they have chosen a preferable theater of war? Did they lack equipment, manpower, mobility? Did they have poor leadership or a poor plan? Or we can look at it from a totally different perspective and ask, why do we know about this last stand? That's a good point. How did this story survive mm -hmm. if everyone died? If they successfully held off the enemy long enough to make the history books, they must have done at least something right. What can we learn from them? 
um, in the case of Thermopylae, I know we're not going to mention it, but they know it because he let one guy go back to tell the story. Oh, really? That's that is confirmed. That's something that 300 actually got right. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't realize that, that they actually allowed one man to live or that one man did live, you know, or leave before the final, final battle. Now, we still don't know how they died because nobody was witnessing that. that yeah, uh, I guess that's up to... That's speculation, right? They probably found the bodies later and just made up something. Yeah, I, I was under the impression that they managed to find some kind of hill nearby. And that's usually how it goes, right? You try to get the high ground. And, um, of course, they were overwhelmed by uh, just insane numbers of Persians. R.I.P. So it's also worth mentioning that some last stands are successful. Not often, but sometimes. And the attackers are repulsed. What lessons can we learn from these exceptional cases? As Sun Tzu said in The Art of War... The highest form of generalship is to balk the enemy's plans. The next best to prevent the junction of the enemy's forces. The next in order is to attack the enemy's army in the field. And the worst policy of all is to besiege walled cities. The worst. Never do it. Keep that in mind as we go along. I think the, the Turks would disagree with you in 1453. I'm They're, not saying but, it's, it's 100% that it's never going to work, but it takes a lot of effort, and you should probably try every other avenue before right. that. And then thirdly, there's general human nature that we can learn about. As you may have noticed when we introduced the topics, many of these last stands are from different times, places, and wars. It would seem that fighting until the last man is a uniquely human trait, one that transcends time and culture. For this reason alone, last stands would be well worth studying. Absolutely. So, yeah, I know what you're thinking. Oh my gosh, why is Thermopylae not on the list? How dare you? Yes, yes, but everyone knows the basic story there. And even if you don't know the real account, you've at least seen the movie 300. It's so epic, it's so awesome, you must have seen it. Uh, so, we couldn't really tell you much that you don't already know about it. And plus, there's really no contest between any of these last stands in Thermopylae. I mean, it is the creme de la creme. The odds were stacked so high against the Spartan Greek alliance, and the Persian army was so swole that it was bound to be the biggest and the baddest last stand. And it is. It's really in a league of its own. So we're going to let it stay there, and we're going to cover some others that you may not have heard of and uh, are still worth learning about. Right, so we go to 680 AD in the Muslim calendar. It's probably like 50, 50 years after Muhammad or whatever. Okay, 50 years after Muhammad. Cool. Something like that. So the Battle of Karbala. This battle was fought on October 10th, 680 AD in modern-day Iraq between 100 supporters and relatives of Muhammad's grandson named Hussein and a 5,000-strong military force su supplied by Yazid I, who was the caliph or leader of the Umayyad dynasty. It is considered a defining moment in Islamic history, when Sunni and Shia Islam really divided. Following the death of the Prophet Muhammad in 632 AD, the Islamic community struggled to agree on who should succeed him and how. This cult, uh, culminated in the first Islamic civil war and allowed Muawiyah I to take power after defeating his archenemy Ali. Muawiyah wanted to make sure his son Yazid would succeed him, so he made his supporters swear allegiance to him. Yazid did eventually take the throne, but many Muslims saw Yazid as a sinner without morals and saw a man named Hussein, the son of Ali, Muwiyah's former archenemy who was assassinated during the war. They saw Hussein as a virtuous leader and true embodiment of the Quran's teachings. Yazid demanded that Hussein and his supporters swear allegiance to him, but they would not. 
Hussein believed that Muhammad himself had instructed Hussein's dad Ali to succeed him after his death. In Hussein's mind, accepting Yazid as the caliph was the same as betraying the prophet. So instead, he and about 100 supporters and family members traveled to Kufa to rally his allies in an effort to challenge Yazid's power. Mm, what will happen? Well, we're about violence to see. from the beginning. I'll yeah. just note. <laughs> yeah, a lot of violence. So here's what happened with the battle. Yazid's forces surrounded Hussein's camp for days while terms of surrender were negotiated. A local governor loyal to Yazid seemed eager to cut Hussein a break and let him and his people leave Iraq in peace. When this proposal was run up the chain of command, however, it was quickly denied. The surrounding army eventually cut off the small camp's access to the Euphrates River, hoping to force them into surrender as they succumbed to thirst. Hussein told his men he intended to fight to the death and gave them the chance to flee to safety during the night. But nobody left. What a bunch of great, awesome guys. I mean, to have those guys under your command, wow. In the morning, Hussein made a final plea to Yazid soldiers, which was allegedly so inspiring, it convinced a commander to defect to Hussein's side, along with some of his men. Not wanting to risk any more of that funny business and risk tempting the wrath of Yazid, the local governor ordered the camp to be attacked. Indeed, Hussein kept his promise and martyred himself in the name of his religion. And the remaining women and children of Hussein's family were rounded up and taken away to Yazid's court in Damascus, where he held them and publicly ridiculed them, hoping this would deflate the will of Hussein's supporters to fight on for the cause. However, during their travels to Damascus, Hussein's sister and his son eulogized him, spoke highly of his bravery and education and his dedication and spoke of the evils committed by Yazid and his allies. Like, uh, for example, uh, in the parlay moment there uh, before the actual battle, uh, they shot an arrow at Hussein's toddler as he spoke to the soldiers begging them for water. He's just holding this baby, and a dude literally just shot him with an arrow. Pretty disrespectful, if you ask me. And Yazid's popularity dwindled because of these stories, and he eventually let the prisoners go, allowing them to return to Medina. The Battle of Karbala inspired the Shia commemoration of Ashura to remember the martyrdom of Hussein, which is still a part of Islamic tradition today. So to be clear, uh, the Ali and Hussein side became Shia? Uh, yeah, because there was already a divide during the Civil War. Basically, yeah, he, his son, Hussein, thought that, yeah, I am the descendant of, of Muhammad. I'm the predecessor. I should succeed him. And so that was already ingrained in his dad, and his dad ingrained that in Hussein, and so he thought he was justified in opposing Yazid. And so that's what added up to this big battle. So next we have the fall of Constantinople in 1453. This one might bring a tear to some eyes like it did mine. <laughs> the fall of Constantinople was the end of the Byzantine Empire, also known as the Eastern Roman Empire. I'm already crying. Yeah, for real. It lives on in our hearts. Yeah. Upon the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in 476 AD to barbarians, an eastern half, the eastern half kept thriving, the pinnacle of which was the reign of Justinian I in the mid-6th century. When the Roman Empire was temporarily reunited, he, invade, he got a lot of Italy and Spain and northern Africa. Oh, really? Yeah, it didn't last, though, because there was a big plague and stuff. But Oh. Yeah, sad. They should have worn masks. <laughs> Constantinople was the physical and cultural capital of the Byzantine Empire. It was founded by Emperor Constantine himself on the city of Byzantium. 
Though it reached much further in its heyday, the Byzantine Empire controlled much of Turkey, some of the Balkans, and most of Greece for much of its, ex its existence. Until the Turks came in around the Crusades' time, it controlled the Middle East as well. It's on a peninsula situated on the Bosphorus Strait, which connects the Mediterranean with the Black Sea. Today, it is known as Istanbul and is a major city in Turkey. Now, some people will, especially Greeks, they'll be defiant and they'll say, oh, it's Constantinople. But Istanbul is not an Islamic thing. It just means in the city. In the city. So it was, uh, Don Henley was uh, was the one who <laughs> is trying to keep the peace over there, I guess. Sure. I mean, it was known as Istanbul in the days of the Christians, too. Hmm. That's the point. It was just like, let's go to in the city. It's okay, just like so the city. Oh, okay. so it's not Christian. It's not Muslim. It's just the city. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then that's not so bad. No, it isn't. It's a common misconception. In fact, the the modern, uh, the patriarch uh, that's Greek mm -hmm. of what used to be Constantinople, he's referred to as the patriarch of Constantinople still. Oh. So be careful who you're talking to when you say Istanbul. <laughs> yeah. In 1053, the Eastern and Western Church split into the Eastern Orthodox Churches and the Catholic Church, respectively. It was the culmination of political strife between the emperor and the pope, and a growing cultural divide, but also a minor theological difference, such as the Filioque. We won't get into that today. The Byzantines called for Latin help to reclaim the Holy Land from the Seljuk Turks, but after temporary success, the Latins sacked Constantinople in 1204 in the Fourth Crusade and held it until 1261, greatly weakening the Greeks long-term. Now, I'm pretty sure they were excommunicated by the Pope, the people who did this, for, for engaging just... in the Fourth Crusade. No, the the crusade started out with good intentions, but then they just sacked Constantinople, a Christian city, which they were specifically forbidden to do. Oh. And also another Christian city. So they just wanted money. So oh. They, anyways. Uh, Orthodox still bring it up as they're still mad about it. it was, <laughs> I mean, Still it, after all this time. It was over 800 years ago. But anyways. But soon after, soon after the Ottomans would begin to harass the Byzantines. The Ottomans achieved independence from a Mongol vassal state around 1300 and expanded in all directions. By the time Mehmed II besieged Constantinople, the, quote, empire was only the city itself, a small part of Greece, and a few tiny successor kingdoms, like on the the Black Sea and I think modern day, the, the island of Spar uh, that Spartazon, mm, okay, stuff yeah. like that. So it wasn't that big by the time they got there. They'd already been weakened substantially. The Ottomans controlled almost all of Turkey, Bulgaria, and Greece. So they really surrounded this whole city. And it's yeah. just the city was sticking up because it has such good walls around it. Oh, yes, which we'll get to in a yeah. minute, I believe. The walls are impressive. Yeah, very impressive. Uh, Constantine the Eleventh was the Byzantine emperor, and he was in the walls of Constantinople by the time it was besieged. A few dozen Venetian ships and about 1,000 Latin volunteers were there at the time of the siege. So 60 to 80,000 Ottoman besiegers faced a count of 7,000 soldiers and 30,000 armed civilians. Wow, those are some serious odds there. Yeah, and considering the 30,000 were not trained, they just got like a, a pike or something. and they Yeah, here, they take know. this, you know. Yeah. yeah. The, the emperor was definitely drafting everyone he could. <laughs> well, it's a pretty desperate situation, yeah, I can't believe it. very desperate. Him. The walls of Constantinople had never been breached, 
because the Crusaders used deceit to have the Greeks let them in. Now, how did that happen? Do you know about that? They said, oh, can you harbor us for a little bit? And then he opened the doors, and they just started going ham. So they didn't even build a wooden horse. They just said, hey, we're tired. Let us in. Okay. Well, they were supposed to be – they were there to help the the Byzantines, like oh, the Greeks. Oh, and they double-crossed them. They double-crossed them. Mm. Yeah. It was a terrible time. Very, very shameful. Land walls surrounding Constantinople were four miles long with a double line, meaning two walls, and it had a moat in between the two walls. Wow. They were 40 feet tall, the tallest, and 16 feet thick. They were There was a seawall and a huge metal chain that went across the northern waterway to prevent Ottoman ships from harassing them on the north. They literally put just a huge chain across like this. So a river. boat just couldn't ri- just move. A boat couldn't cross it. Yeah, they had it in the way. Wow. And it was very thick metal. So. Yeah. Mehmed's forces were able to s- circumvent the chain. They just carried the boats around the chain on land. Oh, my gosh. It was really ingenious, to be honest. Yeah, that must have taken a while. How did? I wonder how they defended themselves. Well, I guess everybody was already no. holed up in the city, right? Yeah, they, so they no controlled was... that area. Oh, okay, yeah. They so controlled no everything besides the walls of the city. Wow. They surrounded the city on all sides by doing that. They fired cannons at the wall because gunpowder was new up-and-coming thing. Yeah. Yeah. Brand new uh brand new invention. Yeah, but it took their biggest cannon took 3 hours to reload just <laughs> cuz it was so big and complicated they had to put all that gunpowder in. Oh jeez. So the at night the people inside the walls would just repair the damage and it was like they hadn't even showed up. Hmm. But he eventually got tired of that and he just he did an all-out assault with the cannons. And that brought about a big hole, big enough to where people could come in. Oh, yeah. Through the one wall. They did that, and then through a number of instances, they got through the second wall. The There was a panic in the city. The defenders, many of them rushed to the ships, and some of them managed to escape. Mm-hmm. Not many, though, because the Ottomans were already there. In the yeah, city. surrounding them. Yeah. There are many conflicting stories on Constantine the Eleventh's death, but I will relay the one the, cho- the Greeks choose to believe. Why not? Another, a little last stand within a last stand that nobody lived to tell. But they say that he and few of his entourage made a futile charge at the Turks after shouting, the city has fallen and I am still alive. But did they say it like Eddie Vedder? (laughs) I'll let that one be. I won't do an impression. (laughs) So what happened afterwards? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, Who can predict it? Uh, Who can? Mehmed allowed his soldiers to rape, pillage, and plunder for three days. Imagine that. Thousands were murdered and or raped. Uh, Many churches were looted. The famous Hagia Sophia was converted into a mosque, and it still is a mosque today, correct? Yes, but that's only new because after World War I, Ataturk took over Turkey, and he made it secular, and he made it into a museum that anyone could go to. Okay. But recently, the... Turk, Turkey, pre- Turkish president made it into a mosque again. Oh, okay. All right. So it's back to being a mosque. Yep. Uh, after three days of hell at the hands of the savages, many of the remaining people in Constantinople were ransomed for money or enslaved. The capture of Constantinople opened the floodgates for the Muslim Ottoman Empire to invade Europe. Constantinople had been a buffer and then a thorn in the side against the Ottomans. Modern scholars argue that this marked the end of the medieval period for Europe. The Ottomans got as far as Vienna, Austria in 1683, but they were slowly driven back from that point onwards. Now let's move on to the last stand of the Swiss Guard in 1527. This is one of my favorites. 
The event occurred following the month-long pillaging of the Eternal City by the 20,000-strong army of Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. The defenders of the city consisted of just 200 Swiss Guard and about 5,000 militiamen, probably about as well-trained as uh, the guys from earlier defending Constantinople, just being handed uh, blunt objects to defend themselves with. The battle was a part of the much larger Italian Wars, which lasted from 1494 to 1559, and the scholars usually agree it marks the end of the High Renaissance. So here's some background for you. Italy wasn't always the unified, boot-shaped country it is today. Before 1861, when Victor Emmanuel II assumed the title of King of Italy, unifying the peninsula for the first time since the fall of the original Roman Empire, Italy was divided into separate city-states such as Milan, the Kingdom of Naples, and the Papal States, and the Republic of Florence. These city-states were caught in the middle of an epic power struggle between two juggernauts, the Valois kings of France and the Habsburgs, who controlled Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. Each party wanted hegemony in Europe and needed control of Italy to secure it. Enter Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. He had taken control of Florence, Milan, and Naples, and tried to exert his influence on the rest of Italy. But his aggressive moves made an enemy of the Pope, that's Pope Clement VII to be exact. In response, the Pope organized a coalition in 1526 called the League of Cognac, which included France and Venice, to push back against Charles V. So Charles V amassed an army of 20,000 Spaniards, Germans, and local Italians to fight the League's forces in northern Italy near Milan. The League suffered losses, but would have suffered more had Charles V's army not been so poorly equipped for siege warfare. They didn't even have much heavy artillery. Worse still, the soldiers hadn't been paid in a while and were living off the land. To remedy this, the soldiers mutinied against their general, the Duke of Bourbon, and marched on Rome to pillage. Fun fact, many of the German soldiers were Protestants and relished the idea of plundering the Pope's wealth. Fun. Yeah, really. And uh, they, got, they got their chance, for sure. So here's the battle. On May 6, 1527, the Duke of Bourbon led his army to the old but tall and sturdy walls of Rome, which were built in the 3rd century by Emperor Aurelian. The Duke, clad in his white cloak, decided to lead the charge bravely and scale the walls himself, followed by his men. His flashy attire led to his demise, however, as he was promptly gunned down by musket fire. Nevertheless, the army encountered little resistance and easily made it over the walls. The 5,000 militiamen were, uh, well, really, they were ill-equipped. We mentioned them earlier. Mostly they were just artisans and priests with swords, spears, and muskets. So really not an effective defending army. After finding out uh, that none of the bridges leading to the inner part of the city had been destroyed to impede their advance, Charles V's army headed straight for the Vatican, killing, burning, looting, and torturing as they went. Meanwhile, Pope Clement VII was praying in his private chapel, but had to be rushed to safety through a secret passage leading to the Castel Sant'Angelo, which was the mausoleum of Emperor Hadrian until it was converted into a fortress-slash-prison in the 14th century. It's famous even today. Really? Mm -hmm. People still visit? I mean, still standing? Yeah, it's a beautiful building. And the the bridge of the bridge Sant'Angelo is very famous, too. Oh, cool. It was a narrow escape. All of the Swiss Guard died in a rear guard maneuver. Again, RIP. For the next month, about 1,000 men held off the invading force until supplies ran out 
forcing Clement VII to surrender and offer 400,000 ducats for his freedom. Now, I don't know what that is in modern money, but I'm sure it was a lot. Pope Clement VII bought his freedom and fled to Oviedo for a year before returning to Rome once it was safe. Historians estimate that about 10% of the city's population died during the sack, and thousands more fled before and during the attack. In 1530, Charles V and Pope Clement VII met up in Bologna to reconcile. Having been defeated, the Pope made some compromises, which included letting Charles form a council to reform the church. This later evolved into the Council of Trent. This last stand was somewhat successful in a way. It allowed the Pope to survive and continue to lead and represent the people and the church. So we got in 1836, the Alamo. Oh, yes. Remember the Alamo, as the saying goes. This last stand, which played out from February 23rd to March 6th, is one of the most famous in American history and is surrounded by a mythos that, ha- that many stories from the Wild West share. In what is now San Antonio, Texas, two forces collided, roughly 4,000 Mexican troops led by the ruthless Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana and only about fi- 150 men fighting for Texas's independence, including William Travis, James B- Bowie, and Davy Crockett. Now, what's the background of this? The Alamo itself was an abandoned mission, as in a group of buildings used by Christian missionaries, which over the years had been used by Spanish forces, Mexican rebels in the war for independence, and finally, American forces. Having just recently gained independence from Spain in 1821, Mexico controlled the area we call Texas today, but that would soon change. Under Spanish rule, Americans were allowed to take up residence in Mexican-owned Texas, And I will note under some conditions, such as having to convert to Catholicism and, I think, learn Spanish, which none of them did either. That's racist. (laughs) But it makes sense. That's a a smart policy, you know, basically wanting them to integrate. They want to integrate. And the people are like, sure, and then they just lied and didn't. Yeah. But anyways, uh, (laughs) they did take up residence in great numbers in Texas. And they went from America to Mexico, the opposite of how things are today. Independent Mexico kept up this policy as the northern border needed protection from native raids, and American immigrants were willing to defend it if it meant they could settle in new land and start fresh. Texas enjoyed a lot of autonomy until Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana was elected el presidente. I'm loving your accent. Keep it going. Thank you. (laughs) He wanted to centralize Mexico's government and rein in the freedoms Texas had enjoyed. Sounds like this was written by a pro-American. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, it's true. He did want that. I mean, he wanted to rein them in. Now, whether or not he was justified, that's... The you know, freedoms Texans had, had enjoyed. <laughs> I, they did. They enjoyed yeah. autonomy. I yeah. mean, you know, hey, I'm not going to say my language isn't biased, but I mean, in this case, it's not. <laughs> I don't think it is. This didn't sit well with the Texans. <laughs> <laughs> don't mess with Texas. Tensions boiled over after a Mexican army detachment was sent to recover a single cannon from the town of Gonzales. Uh, Negotiations failed and the Mexicans were defeated in the ensuing battle. This victory emboldened the Texans, who then marched on San Antonio, besieged the city, and captured the Alamo. So what happened with the battle, the famous Battle of the Alamo? The Alamo and surrounding area was strategically important because it was a crossroads of sorts, providing access to main roads for resupply and communication, and was also a barrier between the approaching Mexican army and other settlements to the east. By the time Santa Ana's forces arrived on February 23, 1836, to stomp out the rebellion, 
the Alamo was armed with 18 cannons and about 150 men. As commanders from both armies attempted to parley, Commander William Travis, only 26 years old at the time, remained at the fort and fired a single cannon shot as a big F.U. to Santa Ana. In response, Santa Ana hoisted the red flag, meaning that no quarter would be given. Kill them all. A 13-day siege commenced, during which Travis would pen his epic victory or death letter addressed to the people of Texas and all Americans of the world. 32 men from Gonzales would arrive to aid the Alamo, and the provisional government of Texas would officially declare independence on March 2nd. At dawn on March 6th, Santa Ana attacked. The battle lasted only 90 minutes, and though the Mexican army lost about 1,000 men, every defender, including Davy Crockett, perished. A few non-combatants, like Susanna Dickinson and her daughter, were spared. Afterward, Santa Ana ordered the bodies of the Texans to be burned. Ultimate disrespect. After the Battle of the Alamo, Mexican forces continued to push into Texas without mercy, defeating the rebels at Goliad in the Battle of Calido Creek, and executing 300 prisoners of war a week later. Civilians began to flee to Louisiana, but the Texan army kept up the fight. On April 21, 1836, General Sam Houston met Santa Ana's army on the banks of the San Jacinto River, his men chanting, Remember the Alamo! Remember Goliad! God and Texas! It took them less than half an hour to thrash the Mexican army. The next day, Santa Ana was captured and brought to General Houston, who worked out a deal to form the Republic of Texas. The people rejoiced. Texas was officially recognized by the United States one year later and actually entered into the Union as the 28th state on December 29, 1845, under President James K. Polk. So now we move on to the Battle of the Little Bighorn, or more commonly known as Custer's Last Stand, in 1876. The la this last stand was part of an ongoing struggle between the expanding American Republic and the native tribes out west, mainly in the Montana Territory, which came to a head on June 25th and 26th of 1876. This specific battle pitted Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer and the 7th Cavalry, about 600 men, against an alliance of Cheyenne and Sioux warriors, roughly 3,000, led by Sitting, Hole, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. Don't know if you want to mess with Crazy Horse, name yeah, like that. he sounds pretty wild. Yeah. So what's the background of this? There's lots of background, about 100, a few hundred years of it, in its effort to fulfill what some had called Manifest Destiny. The U.S. pushed further and further west into Indian territories, offer, often signing treaties with various tribes and then often violating those same treaties. The Sioux tribe was especially hostile to American efforts and refused to be totally confined to Indian reservations. Gold was discovered in the Black Hills of South Dakota in 1875, while Custer and his men were scouting the area at the edge of Sioux territory, hoping to find some old forgotten words or ancient melodies. <laughs> but mostly to document the area's resources and plan for the establishment of a military outpost. The discovery of gold drew miners and workers, and the situation soon grew out of hand. The U.S. government offered to buy the Black Hills from the Indians, but the offer was rejected. So the Commissioner of Indian Affairs issued an ultimatum, stating that all Sioux had to report to the Great Sioux Reservation by January 31, 1876, but they did not, so the military took over. But why didn't they go? It's... It's got great in the name. Sounds great. It's the Great Sioux Reservation. <laughs> yeah, why not just give up all your guns and go live on, you know, go live in a government prison? Yeah, why they not, just right? give you rations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Three men were tasked with mustering forces to push the Indians back to the reservation. General Crook, Colonel Gibbon, and General Terry. Custer and his men made up the bulk of Terry's forces from the Dakota Territory. With a combined force of over 2,000 men, they began reconnaissance missions and positioned themselves closer to the enemy force. And by the way, just like this whole battle and Custer is covered really well in a Jocko podcast episode. Oh, cool. It's in the 40s. It's, it's, not, it's in like 40-something or 50-something for episodes. Did we link that? We should link that. Yeah, we can add, Yeah, we can definitely add that. It's a really good one talking about it from the Native American perspective. Oh, cool. Yeah. Now let's go to the battle. The tribes had gathered together in the plentiful hunting grounds of Little Bighorn Valley to obtain food and resources and to celebrate the annual Sundance ceremony, where Sitting Bull had a vision that his people would be victorious in a coming battle. As the American forces closed in, Custer and his men detached from Terry's force to perform a flanking maneuver from the east and south, while the rest of the army moved north to encircle the enemy. Custer's plan was to camp out in the Wolf Mountains and march in at night to attack at dawn. But native scouts discovered Custer's presence, so he stormed in ahead of schedule rather than allow the Indians to slip away, a common and well-founded fear for American forces fighting Indian tribes. Custer divided his own forces between himself, Captain Benteen, and Major Reno on June 25th. Now Reno approached the Cheyenne camp via the bottom of the river valley, forming a skirmish line to attack the surprised natives but they were soon overwhelmed and retreated twice across the river and up the steep bluffs to gain the high ground. The Cheyenne gave chase, brutalizing them from horseback as if it were a buffalo hunt. Yeah, this is yeah. what they train for. This is what they live for. Captain Benteen caught up with Reno's force, and together they searched for Custer's party heading north. However, they ran into a large Indian force which pushed them back to a hill, where they resisted a siege for two days until the natives finally moved south. Without instant communication and without any survivors, not much is known about the exact reason Custer's own force failed. Here's what we do know. He followed the bluffs northward to a drainage called Medicine Tail Kali, skirmished with native forces, retreated to Calhoun Hill once the main native force had forced Reno into retreat, and made a last stand against hundreds of Cheyenne warriors atop the hill. Their bodies were looted, stripped of clothing, scalped, and mutilated. As a result of this embarrassing loss, the U.S. government cracked down on Indian tribes in the Great Plains and ramped up their military forces to ensure the Native peoples found their way onto designated reservations one way or another. Within a year after the loss at Little Bighorn, nearly all Native hostiles had surrendered to the U.S. forces. The Black Hills region was taken by force without compensation. Sad. Yeah. Now on to my other favorite. The Battle of Shiroyama, 1877. This one's a hoot, I'll tell you. This battle, which occurred on September 24, 1877, has become known as the Last Stand of the Samurai. It was the final confrontation in the Satsuma Rebellion, which was initiated in January of 1877 by the newly established Empire of Japan as it tried to prevent an uprising of the dejected, isolated samurai warrior class which had taken refuge in the Satsuma Domain and were led by a man named Saigo Takamori. At the start of the rebellion, Saigo's men numbered near 20,000, but on the morning of their final battle, only about 500 men remained to fight against an Imperial Army regiment 60 times their size. Now, I'll go ahead and note right here, there are a lot of Japanese words coming up, and a lot of them were kind of confusing to me, trying to keep them all 
straight because they kind of a lot sounded the same to me. So I will try to be very clear and uh, precise with my language as we move forward. For 250 years, Japan was ruled by the Tokugawa shogunate, which originally came into existence to provide stability after a century of warfare. But in 1867, the shogun, the leader of the shogunate at the time, ceded his power to Emperor Meiji. Remaining Tokugawa loyalists were defeated in the Boshin War, which was basically a civil war, and Japan entered the period known as the Meiji Restoration, which saw major social, political, and technological changes occur in Japan. This was brought about in part with the help of the Satsuma people and the samurai who lived there. But they were not too happy with the results as this new modernized government was making their way of life obsolete. The samurai warrior class found refuge in Satsuma, and the domain enjoyed relative autonomy for many years. In 1874, Saigo Takamori resigned from the imperial government because they wouldn't let him fight the Koreans. <laughs> he even offered to travel there alone to make such an ass of himself that the Koreans would be forced to kill him, thereby giving Japan just cause to invade Korea. True story. He established a training camp or a school of sorts in the city of Kagoshima, where other disenchanted warriors could learn history, language, and the ways of the samurai. Similar academies began popping up elsewhere, and the imperial government began to fear a samurai uprising. That's one thing they did not want. So they sent an armed group of men to Kagoshima to confiscate the rumored arsenal. Reminds you of Waco, doesn't it? And uh, they were met with major resistance. The empire's actions led to widespread raiding of imperial shipyards and arsenals. The rebellion was in full swing. Saigo was coaxed out of retirement to lead the fight. Saigo's first order of business was to attack the nearby Kumamoto Castle, an imperial stronghold guarded by 4,000 men on February 22nd. Saigo's forces neared 20,000 and were confident they could easily lay siege to the castle and defeat the peasant conscripts inside but they were wrong. Though modern weaponry was employed by both sides, it proved especially effective for the defending party and made the hand-to-hand -hand skill and swordsmanship of the samurai ineffective. On March 8th, Imperial forces took over Saigo's base in Kagoshima, cutting him off. By April 12th, Imperial reinforcements arrived at the castle and pushed Saigo's men uh, back, forcing them into a retreat. They camped out in the hills near Hitoyoshi for weeks catching their breath while the imperial army resupplied and regrouped. By late July, the empire was on their tail again and nearly defeated them outside of Nobueka, but they barely escaped. By August, their numbers were down to a mere 3,000. Most of these men made a stand on Mount Endowake, or committed seppuku, but Saigo escaped again with only 500 men. Saigo and crew made it back home to Kagoshima on September 1st and took up a position on Shiroyama Hill overlooking the city as 30,000 imperial troops surrounded them. The empire played it safe and patient this time, not wanting to risk Saigo escaping. They built fortifications and brought in heavy artillery. They demanded surrender, which was refused. So the order was given to bombard the samurai from all sides, regardless of friendly casualties. At one point, the samurai charged the line of enemy troops and killed a bunch of them with their swords, as the empire's troops 
were not well trained in hand-to-hand combat, and so uh, the swordsmanship of the samurai was more effective there. But the sheer number of men behind the line uh, pushed the samurai back. Finally, Saigo was either shot and later beheaded by his second-in-command in accordance with the samurai custom, or he went full seppuku and stabbed himself and then got his head cut off. Nobody knows for sure. But after that, the rest of the warriors charged into rifle fire, swords in hand, and died honorable deaths. The rebellion ended on that hill. The Satsuma Rebellion was so expensive for the Japanese government that it forced them off the gold standard and they started printing paper money, though their national debt more than doubled. But the land tax was lowered by a small percentage, so I guess that's good. They had to appease the people somehow, I guess. The rebellion also demonstrated that the peasant troops weren't such a bad idea after all, and they became a staple in Japan's military. If they can defeat the samurai, they must be all right. Saigo was posthumously pardoned in 1889. The people remember him as a tragic hero, and so do we. Right, so now we're moving forward quite a bit to 1942. We're getting to the World War II ones. Yes. Uh, Pavlov's house in Stalingrad. Stalingrad, modern day known as Volgograd, as it's on the Volga River, was a key point in the eastern front of World War II. The Battle of Stalingrad was where the Germans were defeated and driven back, where they suffered greatly at the hands of Mother Nature. It was named after the dictator Joseph Stalin, and both he and Hitler knew that its fall to the Nazis would be a huge embarrassment to the Soviets. So for that reason, it was definitely a place where Stalin made them take a last stand. Yeah, I mean, this it was like all the chips were on the table right there. Yeah. Here's the background of it. You might know a lot of this, but here we go. In 1939, the Soviet Union and Germany signed a non-aggression pact, which later gave each half of Poland without directly fighting each other. It's kind of a a wink-winks kind of situation. Mm. However, in June 1941, Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, surprisingly, in a plan they called Operation Barbarossa. They sent in about 3 million men, 3,000 tanks, 7,000 artillery, and 2,500 aircraft completely surprising the Soviets, and they attacked them across the whole Russian border. Wow, and that's completely surprised me when I read that in the yeah. notes. Holy goodness gracious, that is a ton of manpower and weaponry to throw yeah. at one fight. They were all split up across the long Russian border. They were just attacking all the way up and down. Goodness gracious. It didn't take them long to advance 400 miles into Russia, only 200 miles from Moscow. This was the main force. They almost made it to Moscow, but the historically cold winter and the constant replenishment of Soviet numbers kept them back that winter. Now, Russia got lucky because the winter was like very cold and early that year, so oh. it helped them. They were used to it. By November 1941, the Germans had suffered 730,000 casualties. If you think about that, that's just under 25%. Good night. The Germans were moving all along the Russian border. The Southern Campaign, which is what we'll be talking about, saw the Germans reach Stalingrad in the summer of 1942. Stalingrad was an important industrial city which produced armaments and tractors and also would cut off southern Russia from the Soviets where oil fields were. So this was definitely something to keep in their possession if they yes. wanted to win. Just for your reference, in like, it's in like southwest Russia. Okay. It's near uh, like Georgia and it's like near the Caucasus more so than like the northern part. Oh, Anyways. Okay. Stalin ordered that no one, soldier nor civilian, was allowed to evacuate. The Battle of Stalingrad saw intense house-to-house fighting, 
And he said civilians weren't allowed to leave because the soldiers would fight harder. If the civilians were right next to him, yeah. Yeah, messed up. That is messed Uh, up. We'll talk about that in a minute, but messed up. Now here's the battle. Before long, the Germans controlled 90% of Stalingrad. Mm. All hope was lost for many. However, Sergeant Yakov Pavlov moved forward into a small apartment building with four other men. The building was strategically located with a line of sight in three directions. I think it was like four or five stories and mm-hmm. would protect the Volga River as a supply river. So it, they were transporting munitions and stuff into the building through the Volga River and the Volga River in the back. Yeah. So that helped them last as long as they did. Pavlov got 30 additional men. Uh, machine guns were placed in at many windows to defend it. Barbed wire, anti-tank, and anti-personnel mines were laid out around the house under fire all the time, and they kept replenishing them. So, so that, a guy would have to run out under yeah. fire and throw more mines they, out. And they do it back. at night, but yeah. yeah. And grenades were often thrown out of windows to keep people from getting too close. Oh, yeah. And tanks. Now, here is a fun part. Uh, Pavlov himself, by himself, disabled a dozen tanks by discovering that if you fired at the thin roofs from above them at a high enough angle, you could disable them that way. Oh, nice. Because these Soviet guns, they, they were supposed to be anti-tank guns, but they were completely useless against the German tanks. Oh, they, they were just too well armored. Yeah, they were too well. the they, very top. The very top where you could like get in and out. So he would just, when they get, got close enough, he would just aim down at them from a high building and just shoot through the really thin nice. roof. So he got, a, he got a dozen tanks that way. These guys held out for 60 days and withstood over 100 attacks. The Germans even labeled this apartment building a fortress. <laughs> they thought it was more well-armed well and well-equipped than it actually was. They were relieved and given high citations for their efforts because eventually other forces came in and rolled them back. Yeah. And they were kicked out of Stalingrad before long. Now, I'm. it's very impressive to me that these men lasted for as long as they did and fought as hard as they did. But what's even more impressive is that the building itself survived 100 attacks without completely collapsing yeah. with them inside it. That's that's some quality Russian engineering right there. <laughs> Just that ugly, you know, communist engineering, pure yeah. utility. Pure utility. And it, it served its purpose. So what's the aftermath of this? The Germans were driven out of Stalingrad and eventually pushed all the way back to Berlin, where they committed the rape of Berlin. Estimated casualties of the Battle of Stalingrad were 800,000 for the Axis powers, 1.1 million for the Red Army, Good night. and 40,000 civilians died on top of all that. The vast majority of those who surrendered died in Soviet camps. So, uh, so if they surrendered to the Germans, they would just turn around and throw no, them in prison? No, if if the Germans surrendered to oh. the Soviets, oh, there yeah. were no Russian. The Russians weren't allowed to surrender. Uh, yeah, I guess yeah. not. Yeah, <laughs> but the but the Germans ended up in camps. You're saying? Yeah, I think only a few thousand of, like the, hundred thousand or eighty thousand that surrendered made it back to Ger- Germany ever. The rest, most of them, just died in the camps because they're like, what? We don't care if you live or die. Oh yeah, scum. yeah. It was pretty terrible, even for the Russian people. Yeah, definitely. Next up is the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising of 1943. Warsaw, Poland, was a major casualty of Nazi Germany. It had the highest Jewish population in Europe and second highest in the world, behind New York City, with 30% of the city being Jewish. After Hitler took over much of Poland, Warsaw became the site of a huge Nazi-imposed Jewish ghetto. So here's some background for you. Germany invaded Poland on September 1, 1939, and German troops were in Warsaw before the month was over. 
Almost immediately, the Jews were forced to wear the Star of David armbands and were oppressed significantly. In October of 1940, all Jews in Warsaw were required to live in a ghetto, which was enclosed with barbed wire and walls. 400,000 people had to live in 1.3 square miles with 7.2 persons per room. That's extremely dense. I mean, on purpose. I mean, yeah. they're trying to put them together. That's a population density of 308,000 people per square mile. The highest density today is in Mali, in the Maldives, with 204,000 people per square mile. So you're looking at like a two-thirds increase, if I'm doing my math right. Like 50% increase. Oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah. The rations were insufficient, and uh, with just over 1,000 calories per person per day, that was really tough for the people, obviously, by design. By mid-1942, 83,000 Jews had died of starvation. That's over 20%. In the summer of 1942, the Germans deported 265,000 Jews to Treblinka, a killing facility, a place where they just killed people en masse instead of putting them through forced labor first, and killed a further 35,000 there. In January of 1943, the Nazis were ready to kill off the rest of the ghetto. About 70,000 to 80,000 people were left. And the desperate residents saw the writing on the wall. Two underground groups, the ZOB and the ZZW, formed in the ghetto with opposing views, but combined for mutual resistance. Now, what did that stand for? I'm sure it was it Polish was, or German. It was in Polish, but the ZOB was a leftist organization and the ZZW was a right-wing one. Oh. But they're, they're all Jewish, of course. Z probably stands for Zionist something, you know. Yeah. That's my guess. Okay. But they decided to combine, so, you know, they're about to die, so might as well. Of course. All right, so let's go to the battle, and I will just say this whole, this is our most depressing last stand probably. There were a few small altercations and a 6,000-person deportation in early 1943, but the real uprising began on April 19, 1943, the eve of Passover. The Germans came in with 2,000 soldiers, artillery, and tanks. Since they knew the resistance wouldn't be negligible, they heard about all these underground operations. 700 young Jewish men armed with mostly pistols and a few grenades caused 12 German casualties on the first day. They lasted 27 days, but the German tactic of raising the ghetto to the ground was effective. They smoked them out. Mm. The leaders killed themselves as their headquarters were captured. Most likely they did that. They're not sure. The SS leader said in a memo back to headquarters, the former Jewish quarter in Warsaw is no more. Jeez. 7,000 residents died in the fighting. So these numbers just keep going down, trying to keep track. But 42,000 survivors of the of the uprising were sent to forced labor camps, and 7,000 captured Jews were sent to Treblinka. Again, the, the labor camps are more like you work until you die, and Treblinka's just you go there to die. Yeah. Like they, it's just a big gas chamber. But of all those 49,000, almost all of them were killed because even the ones that were sent to forced labor camps, there was like a two-day shooting operation where they just went in and wiped these people Mm -hmm. out. However, 20,000 escaped and lived in the Aryan parts of Warsaw. And many Jews hid in the rubble of the ghetto and occasionally would attack patrols. So they were kind of left behind, whether purposely or accidentally, as like guerrilla fighters. They yeah. would just, like, do surprise attacks on them? It was re- just really sporadic. But imagine just living under, like, collapsed buildings, you know? Yeah. You're not going to be able to do much. But uh, as Soviet, this part was even more messed up, I learned. Uh, as Soviet troops began to approach Warsaw in late 1944, the Polish Home Army, which was an underground resistance army, 
composed mostly of like Catholics. Uh, it was just all kinds of people who were resisting. They were they were kind of emboldened to start this uprising in Warsaw because they're like, oh, the Soviets are about to show up. This is our opportunity. They're weak. Yet the Soviets just watched from afar. They didn't even bother like intervening. They just let them all kill each other. Oh, geez. They're just watching all this go down. The Germans crushed the revolt of the Polish Home Army and burned the city to the ground, resulting in 166,000 Polish deaths. Oh, my gosh. Including 17,000 of those Jews. In January 1945, the Soviets took over the city. Only 11,500 Jews survived out of the original 400,000. Uh, the overall population of Warsaw was 6% of its pre-war levels. Dang. Goodness gracious. That was of everybody. So 94% were no longer there. Mm. A lot of them died. A lot of them, I'm sure, just left for some other place. Yeah. All right. Let's cheer ourselves up a little bit with uh, 1944, the Pacific Front. Ben L. Salomon's last stand. If this doesn't make your heart swell right here with the yeah. courage and bravery and badassery, I don't know what will. So take it away, Evan. Yeah. Last stands are characterized by the disproportionate, per, disproportionate numbers of attackers and defenders. But how about when the last stand is done by one man alone? Enter Captain Ben Salomon. He was an exemplary soldier in the Pacific front of World War II. He fought on the island of Saipan. Saipan, I guess. Mm -hmm. Saipan. Yeah, Saipan, a part of the Northern Mariana Islands. Today, it's a commonwealth of the United States. In 1944, though, it was owned by the Japanese Empire, and its acquisition was considered essential by American war leaders. America invaded Saipan, Saipan on June 15th of, that, of uh, 1944. Now, what's the background? Ben Salomon was a dentist when he was drafted in t as an Army Infantry Private in 1940. However, they realized that, that he had medical training, and he turned out to be an excellent marksman. So he became a dental officer. Oh. Didn't know that was a thing, but I guess people's teeth get messed up. Yeah. Despite being the dental officer and being exempt from most of the training, he took part in all of it. To Voluntarily? Keep him, yeah. He would go running with the, the troops and do all their exercises just to keep up. Sweet. Captain Salomon volunteered to replace a wounded field surgeon in the fight for Saipan. Like the Japs often did, they took a bonsai approach in a desperate attempt to fend off the Americans. He had a medical tent in the battle that was 50 yards behind the front line. Okay, so he's 50 yards uh, behind the front line, and then the Japs decide to use a bonsai tactic and just rush in. So well, they start they, rushing in. They coordinate and just push. Okay. They push, push until push. they're past that point. Yep. Oh, okay. All right. So let's go over the battle, the epic battle. On July 7th, 1944, a, a Japanese warrior ran into the tent and bayoneted an unarmed and wounded soldier. Captain Salomon shot him with a rifle. After that, two more Japs burst in. Salomon clubbed, bayoneted, and shot both of them. So already this dude's at three, three kills, all right? And, but he's not even done yet. Another four made their way downtown, walking fast. Their faces passed. They were homebound. Salomon kicked a knife out of one of their hands, shooting him and bayoneting another. He used the Jap knife to kill the third and headbutted the fourth. Realizing the desperation of their situation, he ordered the wounded to be evacuated. Thirty men retreated and made it to safety with the help of Captain Salomon's heroic rear guard stand with a heavy machine gun. Yeah, he got that machine gun when everyone was retreating out of the tent. Yeah, he's running. They're running away. He just grabs up the machine gun and says, "I'm gonna cover you." All right, like just like an epic action hero. 
Uh, none of the rest of the events were witnessed, but when the Americans retook the area, Captain Salomon was slumped over his machine gun with a grand total of 98 dead Japanese surrounding him. The Japanese were evidently angry at him for killing almost a hundred of their men by himself because his body was found with 76 bullet wounds and 24 bayonet wounds. So they took their anger out on him, yeah, but you... he, had already, he had already done what he came to do. Yeah, I think I, I saw only like 26 of the bullet wounds were when he was alive, supposedly. The rest were just... They yeah, were just, just unloading on him. Yeah, definitely. 58 years after his death in uh, 2002, Captain... I'm sorry, he didn't die in 2002, but this was in 2002, which was 58 years after that. Captain Ben L. Salomon uh, finally received a posthumous Medal of Honor, which he definitely earned. Saipan was securely captured on uh, July 9th, more than three weeks after the initial invasion. On this island alone, 23,000 Japanese troops were killed, 22,000 civilians had died, and 15,000 civilians languished. There were 26,000 American casualties, including 5,000 deaths, but... Captain Salomon will be remembered above all for his brave deeds. You know why it took so long to get him a Medal of Honor? Why? Because medical offers, officers were considered uh, ineligible to get the Medal of Honor. Oh, According man. According to the Geneva Convention. Really? Supposedly. But they finally did a workaround or something, and he got it in 2002. Well, that's good because well, you know, what, he, what he won it for, I mean, he wasn't being a medical officer. He was just being a soldier. Mm -hmm. So I definitely agree with them doing that. That's great. Last but not least, we have a fairly recent last stand with Alexander Prokhorenko's last stand in 2016. Senior Lieutenant Alexander Prokhorenko, known afterward as the Russian Rambo. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Was a Russian special ops soldier who was deployed in Syria against ISIS. His job was to identify good targets for airstrikes which was the primary function of Russian aid at the time. They were just doing airstrikes for the Syrian government. Okay. And I didn't realize the rabbit hole that I was diving into when I did background for this. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. You said it was about the Syrian civil war. Yeah. That was so complicated. I had no clue. It was so terrible to research. Well, I trust that you have done a good job of condensing it into a format that people will be able to easily digest. So whenever uh, you're ready, man, take yeah, it away. Sure. So what's the background of this? The Syrian civil war is extremely complicated, like I said. But here's a little summary. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, in power since his father's death in 2000, saw unrest in Syria in 2011 when the Arab Spring was sweeping through the Middle East. The protesters called for democratic reform and a removal of al-Assad. When al-Assad responded with violence and repression, it became an armed conflict. A loose alliance of Sunnis, most notably the Free Syrian Army, and also jihadist groups, ISIS, and the Kurdish, Kurdish SDF made up a disparate resistance to the Syrian government. Most Western nations have supported the rebels. Their shady connection to terrorism be damned. That's not important. <laughs> Support the uh, arm the moderate rebels, as yes. they say. Yeah. President Obama famously said that the U.S. would intervene if Syria used chemical weapons, but when it allegedly did, he did not have the support to act on this threat. Russia, Iran, Hezbollah, Iraq, and Egypt support al-Assad, and the U.S., U.K., France, Turkey, and the Arab League support the rebels. Now, Saudi Arabia is in the Arab League, by the way. Oh, okay. And it's a few other countries. I don't know exactly who. 
The U.S. has mostly attacked ISIS, but did attack the government a few times in retaliation for using chemical weapons. That was extremely uh, like surprising and and pretty famous. That was like one of the first things Trump did, right? Was a, that yeah. giant missile strike? Yeah, could because Al-Assad supposedly unleashed chemical weapons on civilians in yeah. like a rebel town. So that's what he did it for. And then he didn't attack him anymore. He's like, okay, now we're going to attack. Uh, we're going to attack ISIS again. Yeah. After just hurting like the force that's fighting most against ISIS. It's so messed up. Now, Turkey received millions of refugees. And I learned this too. They actually invaded part of northern Syria as a buffer zone because so many millions of refugees were coming and ISIS was getting close. So they invaded northern Syria. Really? And said, okay, you're like, we're going to protect our real borders here now. Oh, and they use that as like a, yeah, a buffer zone, like I said, or in some sort of neutral zone. Yeah, and they put some of the refugees there. It was just kind of protect their own borders. Yeah. But um, as of today, they have given it back. They gave it to the Kurds. Oh, okay. Because Turkey is on the side of the rebels. I see. I see. Yes, this is this is very complicated. Like already, we've only like scratched the surface of this. Very complex. So here's the battle. It's worth noting that the information comes from the Kremlin and state-affiliated media, so it must be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, <laughs> that's putting it lightly. Palmyra is a prominent and strategically located city in central Syria. Prokhorenko was deployed to take back uh, Palmyra for the rebels and somehow got isolated and surrounded by ISIS fighters, unable to reach the extraction point or defend himself from the militants who would humiliate and torture him. Prokhorenko requested an airstrike on his own position. The supposed transcript of his last words is rated unproven on Snopes, but here is part of it. So again, take it with a grain of salt. I am surrounded, he said. They are outside. I don't want them to take me and parade me. Conduct the airstrike. They will make a mockery of me and this uniform. I want to die with dignity and take all these bastards with me. Tell my family and my country I love them. Avenge my death. Epic. So here's the aftermath. On March 27th, 10 days after his death, the Syrian Arab uh, army fully recaptured Palmyra. Prokhorenko's body was flown back to Moscow and greeted by his pregnant wife. President Vladimir Putin posthumously awarded him the title of hero of the Russian Federation. His hometown considered naming his middle school after him. That's awesome. Uh, Putin had already ordered a withdrawal of most of his forces, just providing airstrikes for Syria. However, that was quickly reversed, and at the end of 2017, Russia announced that they would have troops in Syria permanently. Al-Assad's government forces control 64%, SDF controls 25%, rebel uh, groups and Turkey control 10%, and ISIS controls a mere 1%. The civil war is still ongoing. Roughly 500,000 to 600,000 people have died as a result, and 6.6 million people have been turned into refugees, and 6.7 million have been internally displaced. I think combined, that's about half of the whole country. Yeah, I mean, Syria's in rough shape. That's pretty well documented, and yeah. I can see why. It's still going on. Uh, people say that it would, you know, the rebels would have won by now if Russia hadn't intervened. Yeah, but. goodness. So here are the takeaways. Last stands tend to occur at the height of battle, when both sides are most desperate. And it's for this reason that they always seem to make the history books. They're worth recording and remembering and even celebrating, because they show us what great lengths men will go to to defend the principles, ideas, God, or country 
that they value more than their own lives. In the words of William Wallace, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Wow. (laughs) So regardless of the political or religious beliefs of the last standers, we have a mad respect for these warriors. They aren't, there aren't many people who would spend a month fighting barbarians to save the Pope or charge into rifle pi- uh, fire with nothing but a cantata. katana. Sorry. Out of all the absolute mad lads in this list, Salomon and Prokhorinko are really top tier. Incredible acts of valor. They were armies of one. True that. So let us wrap it up with lingering questions. Uh, will these events always be remembered? Is the fact that we're still talking about Thermopylae, for example, proof that some stories can live forever. Had we included it, it would have been the oldest battle, 2,400 years old. What do you think, wow. Evan? I mean, do you think that, that these that we've covered will be around for as that long? I think some of them will. Yeah. It kind of depends on how things go in history, but Thermopylae will, um, I don't know. I think Karbala will. I mean, the obviously the within the Muslim world, it will live on. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Now you might, you know, depending on what what happens to the United States and who knows how long, you know, Ben Salomon's story might be forgotten. But I think like the major, major happenings in world history, I think they'll be they'll be remembered. Shiryama will probably be remembered for a long time. I mean, samurai, that's like what defined Japan for a long time. I mean, it, it makes you think, world, are we overemphasizing World War II because it's so close to us? Maybe in a few hundred years, there'll just be like another war that they talk about. It won't be that big. What do you think? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think there's always going to be some new, bigger conflict. And it may be so big the next time that it could overshadow World War II. I mean, even though it is kind of a long time ago. 70 years going on um 80 it's still it was just such a huge conflict you know so it's going to be in our consciousness for a while but you know war never changes so there will be others and they will probably replace some of these stories with other last stand stories right now daniel uh which event was your favorite to learn about and research and which was your least favorite I really liked learning about the Battle of Shiriyama and the Swiss Guard. Because you probably didn't know much about either of those beforehand, right? No, uh, basically none. I mean, I, I knew that obviously there was a time where there were samurai and there was a time where there weren't. And I didn't know what exactly happened to them. But it was really cool to see the death of, an, of the honor culture. And then talk about the Swiss Guard. That was just really cool how they defended the Pope. And the, the story of him escaping through a secret passage, I mean, you can't uh, – yeah, that's a Hollywood script right there. That's mm-hmm. so cool. So it was really f- obviously fortunate, but it was also like just very uh, – I guess you might call it theatrical in a way. And it, it didn't end with him dying. It didn't end with those people being killed. They held out, and they managed to come back to the city and, and make a new life. So that was a really cool – those are probably my favorite too. Mm-hmm. I enjoy doing the fall of Constantinople because I've been avoiding it for so long. I see YouTube videos on it, and I just I know I'm gonna like start crying or getting sad. So <laughs> yeah, it's too soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, you enjoyed learning about it, though. Yeah, I even found this. Uh, it's a famous Greek 
thing. It's called Lament for Constantinople. Oh. We maybe we can play it as you know for our audience, but it's a little sure. If you want me to add it, add it to the yeah. episode, I will. Yeah, we we discussed it. I think it would be good. Uh, just the lament for Constantinople is just this woman or these I don't remember who, but it's someone wailing about the fate of Constantinople. I think that was a pretty cool find. All right, so this is the Byzantine chant, uh, the lament for Constantinople. So we're just going to listen to it real quick, a little little piece of it. This one's more dramatic. (laughs) Sounds like the beginning of Hell's Bells. Since it's in a foreign language, I will translate. Why don't you sing, little bird? Yeah, that that was interesting, and, and I think that does... It, that does capture a certain feeling that of of true sadness and and regret for this awful loss, and um, you know it's not all like happy jo- jovial or anything, but it's not overly depressing either. It's mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle, and and I like that. Okay, so I'd say my least favorite one to research was definitely Alexander Prokhorenko's Last Stand. Just for the Last Stand itself, the amount of research wasn't worth it. <laughs> it's just so I. Yeah, he, calls, a, he calls an airstrike on himself and he dies. Yeah, you know, you know but for all the background I had to do about the Syrian civil war, it's just too much. Yeah. Too complicated. There's a diagram of like 12 groups and it had all these arrows like this This group is attacking this group. This group supports this group and this group and this group. Oh, my goodness. It was impossible. Yeah, the Syrian conflict. Yeah, very complicated. I'm sorry you had to go through that. Oh, you're all right. That's rough. Now our last lingering question. Which war will have the next epic last stand? Will we have to wait until World War III? Well, we got, you know, the the last stand for uh, uh, Prokhorenko's thing. We got that from 2016, you know, from a conflict in Syria, which really isn't even that much of a world conflict. So maybe we won't have to wait, but for a large series of them, like we took a lot from World War II. So a major war will have a lot of last stand examples, I think. Um, however, you know, uh, the battlefield is becoming more modernized, more computerized. So maybe there will be fewer instances or, you know, chances for people like actual human fighters to be caught in last stand situations. Mostly it's, it's air warfare, it's airstrikes and drone strikes. Would it be a last stand if you got some, some guys hold up in a building and then a drone attacks them? Is that a last stand? Mm, only if they're shooting at the drone. Or if they shoot multiple drones down uh, and they are unsuccessful at droning them, yeah. But I don't think that would really be possible with conventional weapons. You'd have to have some kind of laser or something, and that's science fiction, as far as we know. Right. All right. That's all for today's show. Join us again next week for even more ancient wisdom. 